This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit sermo.com. When you join, enter ReachMD into the promotional box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. The incidence of diabetes is growing rapidly. Its end organ effects continue to ravage our patients and our healthcare expenditures. What is on the horizon that might help us better address this devastating disease? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Mitchell Lazar, the Sylvan Eisman Professor of Medicine, Chief of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism, and Director of the Institute for Diabetes, Obesity, and Metabolism at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Lazar. Pleasure, Lee. Diabetes is rising all over. Can you tell us what are some of the newer developments that may help us combat this epidemic? Well, the epidemic, as you know, is a combination of an increase in type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. The vast majority of the patients have type 2 diabetes, and that is presenting its own challenge because of its relationship to obesity and the parallel epidemic of obesity. Type 1 diabetes has a genetic component, but it's also clear that it's an autoimmune response in which the patient's own body is destroying its beta cells, in part sometimes in response to a viral infection. This is increasing, much like allergies are increasing in the country. It's not exactly clear why, but the problem is greater than ever. And are there things that we can do to try to save the beta cells from this autoimmune onslaught? Well, there are a lot of things that are are being tried. To save the beta cells, there are attempts to early on in the course of the disease, especially if a sibling uh, is known to have the disorder and there's evidence that a second one is getting it, there are some attempts to use immunosuppressant regimens. The problem with that, of course, is that those have many side effects of their own. There's some sense that the beta cell might be spared by treatment with some of the incretin pathway modulators, such as Extendin 4, but this too is really experimental, potentially exciting, but experimental. I know certainly the pharmaceutical reps coming in with their TPT4 inhibitors talk about uh, saving beta cells. Absolutely. And it's probably something that is happening in our patients with type 2 diabetes. It has to be clinically proven, but there is a fair amount of evidence for that. In type 1, it's a little less clear. So for the type 1 patient, some of the excitement is in the area of attempts to reverse or cure the disease through transplantation. Is this something that every type 1 would be a candidate for, or right now just very specific populations? Yeah, right now it's very specific. It's not only experimental, but of course there's a, like for most organ transplantation situations, there's a shortage of donors. So at the University of Pennsylvania, which is one of the pioneering centers for first pancreatic transplantation and most recently isla transplantation, There are very specific criteria for selection at the moment. The patients that are being considered for islet cell transplantation are the patients with severe hypoglycemia unawareness and brittle diabetes. These are the patients whose lives on a daily basis are most affected and in fact ruined by their type 1 diabetes. And that's where the risk-benefit ratio really is in favor of giving it a try in these patients. So these are type 1s, sounds like, who have had the disease for a long time and have become very brittle and, as you say, are unaware of hypoglycemia with its potentially devastating effects. That's exactly right. In addition, we are, because type 1 diabetics with kidney disease are candidates for combined pancreas kidney transplants, that's another category that we want to see, of course, treated. 
but they're not eligible at the moment for the island transplantations. Also because any kidney disease they may have may be exacerbated by some of the drugs used for immunosuppression. And it, it sounds like the islet cell transplantation might be a, a simpler procedure than an entire pancreatic transplant, or is that not correct? No, that's exactly right. A pancreatic transplant is a major operation, whereas the islet transplantation is actually an infusion of islet cells into the portal vein of the liver, where the cells and the islets seed the liver. This requires superb, not only surgeons for obtaining the pancreas from the donor, but also cell biologists to separate the islets or the pancreas into their component islets in a very pure and obviously sterile way for reinfusion. And we're very fortunate at the University of Pennsylvania to have Dr. Ali Naji and his team who are, you know, among the best in the world at this. How is the success rate with this? Well, the success rate is increasing. Several years ago, there was a study from the group at Edmonton. After years of dismal results, the Edmonton team had a new regimen, which was glucocorticoid-free, to, to the idea being that that was pro-diabetic and caused insulin resistance and so on. And that regimen, plus improved isolation of the islets and actually infusion of more islets, was incredibly successful. In fact, in their original paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, published at the beginning of this decade, they reported tremendous results with almost 100% cure at 6 to 12 months. Over time, the experience at Edmonton and around the world, including at the University of Pennsylvania, has been that the patients often need uh, a second transplant, and each transplant often comes from two uh, donors. So you're talking about four donors per one patient. With that second transplant, some of the patients remain off insulin. Some of the patients still require a small amount of insulin, but even with that, their brittle diabetes uh, and therefore their episodes of hypoglycemia go way down. So for an individual patient, it can really, even at this point in time, be life-saving from their point of view. Still, there are many hurdles to be overcome and mainly it has to do with the harvesting of the pancreas in the first place, keeping the beta cells alive, maybe even increasing the number outside the body, making sure they stay alive once they're transplanted into the body, and making sure they're not rejected. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm talking with Dr. Mitchell Lazar about the future of diabetic treatment. That's fascinating, an evolving technology, but very exciting. How about for type 2s? Are there newer approaches being developed for type 2 diabetics? Well, for type 2 diabetes, there's a, a couple of uh, new ways to think about it. One, which may seem obvious, is if it's caused by obesity, maybe we need to figure out better ways to treat obesity and get the weight off. Mm -hmm. There, I think most of the excitement and interest is in the realm of understanding the role of the brain in regulating appetite here and satiety. Here, the tremendous success for weight loss of uh, FenFen and related drug combinations and gave, gave hope in the uh, 90s, but of course, there there were side effects that led to um, discontinuation of those regimens. But the proof of concept that you could actually interfere with the sort of uh, appetite and satiety uh, system in the brain is still out there. Is there a renewed enthusiasm for bariatric surgery even? Well, bariatric surgery is not only effective at treating obesity, it's effective at treating diabetes. And uh, in fact, many uh, surgeons are perhaps appropriately offering it for, for that purpose. 
you know, people are of two minds about it. I certainly am in terms of you'd like it to be a last resort. On the other hand, if it works, why not go with it given how ominous the prognosis is of our patients, uh, especially if they have morbid obesity. The bariatric surgery, you know, it's not only about lowering the uh, capacity of the stomach and reducing hunger for that reason. There are actually peptides made by the gut that feed back and affect the appetite centers in the brain. And so by understanding exactly what's being manipulated here, we may be able to come up with less invasive surgical technologies as well as potentially pharmaceutical agents that are aimed at these new gut hormones that are being discovered that the that are being regulated by the bariatric surgery. Oh, interesting. So it's not just a, a plumbing thing, but there's maybe some very real biochemical pathways that are being changed. Absolutely. Uh, there's a relatively recently discovered hormone called ghrelin that is made by the stomach, and its levels go way up before a meal, suggesting that it might be the long-sought-after stimulant of appetite. And so if it could be blocked safely, that would be a really new and exciting way to go about this. Mm. And, and is that part of uh, the so-called endocannabinoid system, or that's separate? Yeah, the endocannabinoid system is separate in the sense that it's a different type of molecule. The endocannabinoids are small lipophilic molecules, whereas ghrelin is a polypeptide hormone. But all of these systems are interacting in the brain and different brain regions, reward centers, hypothalamus, frontal cortex, in ways that were totally uh, not understood, certainly when I was in medical school. It's very intricate, but by understanding these connections we might be able to uh, interfere again with hunger. The endocannabinoids that you mentioned are interesting because the drug Ramonabant has the property of actually blocking the receptor for an endogenous cannabinoid that stimulates hunger uh, normally. And so it's another example of a new target that if the risk-benefit ratio is uh, manageable, could mean new hope for people with uh, obesity and also for diabetes. And, and I think of the incretins and wonder about gene therapy. Are there other things on the horizon that you would like to mention? Well, the, you know, our patients get confused sometimes about the differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. We know that they're very different mechanistically. But where they come together is really that both type 1 and type 2 diabetes are ultimately due to not enough insulin. In the case of type 1, it's absolutely due to loss of insulin. And type 2, it's an imbalance between insulin sensitivity and the amount of uh, insulin a person's uh, pancreas can make. In that context, the attempts to uh, regenerate or prevent the death of insulin-producing beta cells is applicable both to type 1 as well as to type 2 diabetes. Some have even suggested at some point if we could solve the problem of supply for transplantation, that type 2 diabetics would also be uh, candidates. Very interesting. And are there particular medications or products that are on the horizon to help protect the beta cell? Those are on the horizon. We're just understanding how beta cells form in the first place. Some things that kill them we understand now better than we ever did the role of lipotoxicity as well as glucotoxicity. These can be prevented. There's some evidence that the incretin hormones can actually prevent beta cells from dying and even cause them to regenerate in a limited way. One of the places that people are looking is during pregnancy. During pregnancy, there is insulin resistance that's physiological, and the beta cells have to compensate for that. And so if we can understand what's happening there, we might be able to come up with new clues and new treatments that target the beta cell and its ability to regenerate. 
Well, I can certainly relate to what you said about when I first started my career having just sulfonylureas and then insulin. I never would have imagined the explosion of therapeutic options we have now. Can you look in our last minute here in your crystal ball? Will we see a, a similar explosion in the next five to 10 years? I think we will. I think that we'll see newer strategies for keeping the beta cells alive, more insight into what's causing insulin resistance. One thing we haven't touched on, but it's worth mentioning, is the ability to monitor glucose continuously. And the holy grail for diabetic care in the absence of a cure would be to have a closed-loop system where the sensing of glucose and the insulin delivery are coupled without the patient being in the loop. Well, I want to thank Dr. Mitchell Lazar, the chief of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for discussing some of the newer therapies we have and the future outlook for additional therapies for diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.